Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station podcast, a show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Interview 4, Jonathan Turner, Part 2. In this second of three parts, we talk about Rust's role in bringing together the best parts of systems and higher-level languages, as well as about improving the usability of Rust. So without further ado, into this second part of the podcast. You made two comments which sort of stuck together in my mind there, and one was the hesitation that making this a better user experience might compromise it. And then the other is that, oh, no, we can actually do this, especially when we draw on the community. And one of the things I've been enjoying watching is seeing all the people whose background is really C++ and C realize that you can have the nice things, essentially, because it just hasn't. And that's no skin off of C or C++'s backs. I mean, C is almost 50 years old. Good grief. We've learned a lot since then. And it, the fact that it's still going is a testament to Kernighan and Ritchie, to be sure. And likewise for Struestrup. I mean, he invented and the C++ team have invented an enormous amount of what we now take for granted in modern computing. The fact that Ruby has done stuff in the last 10 years with Bundler and everything else that we can draw on now... So watching all these C++ people be like, I don't know about package managers. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. And so yeah, on. Yeah. And then at the same Absolutely. time, you get all these scripting people come in and be like, I can write code that's fast and safe and I don't have to be terrified. This is phenomenal. Yeah. And that's honestly how I feel because I was done writing C and C++. I mean, I was just like, I spend all of my time fighting things and I'm pretty good at writing safe code but I still end up with seg faults every once in a while and they're frustrating. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to do it anymore and the type system is eh, it's not doing it for me. I'll go write yep. I don't know, I'll figure out how to write Haskell or something I guess. <laughs> and it Haskell's cool, but man, learning Haskell is hard. And I came to Russ and I was like this this is what I've been wanting. It's fast and does the things I like in C and C++, but cargo, yes. And a yeah. type system like this, yes. This is phenomenal. Uh, yeah, one thing that was interesting at Microsoft that I worked on was the Lang.next conference. And Lang.next is, you know, you get a bunch of programming language creators and experts together in a room, and they talk to each other. And it's it's kind of what you're saying, but like in high-intensity cross-pollination. And that was that was the hope, is that, having all these people in a room, you can you could really hear each other's good ideas. And at the speaker dinner the night before the conference, I had Nico on my left side and I had Bjarna Strustrup on my right side. And to hear, you know, Bjarna talking about C mm-hmm. and having Nico in my left ear going, you know, C like Rust is a love letter to C. Some yeah. of the stuff that C does really well we absolutely adore like the zero cost abstractions, the way that you know templates are are generics in Rust, but templates in C that you can stamp them out and get you know high performance code. We just do it you know a little yeah. differently, and but it it still really harkens back to the C way. I thought that was that was super cool to to hear you know hear Nico be so yeah Nico like he's a very appreciating the, the the technology, appreciating the, the old way of doing it, and then kind of continuing the, the tradition forward, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fond of reminding people that if or when we get things that are better, it's only because we're standing on top of 
great stuff that's been built before. And and I think Rust is a real step forward, but it's a real step forward because we have something to stand on top of and say, here are all the things that worked phenomenally well in C and C++. Here are some things that worked phenomenally well in Ruby and Node. Here are some things that didn't work so well in C++. And here are a few that NPM just, maybe let's not replicate that particular decision. And being able to do those things is really fun. And it continually strikes me how young our discipline still is, because we're still figuring out some of these things that 50 years from now are going to be looked at as very, very basic, much less 150 (laughs) years from now. I can't even imagine what programming in 150 years is going to be like. No. (laughs) We'll just be waving our hands around and things will be happening. That's that's, that's what the TV shows all say. It'll just be reading our neurons directly. We'll just will it and it will happen. Yeah. That's slightly (laughs) terrifying, actually. I'd really rather a lot of my will not get instantly translated into Uh, software. (laughs) Yeah. So you worked on error messages sort of right out of the gate there. What have you all been working on since then? So, yeah, I did the error messages. Uh, One of the things that I did last year was I joined the community team, the Rust community team. Mm. And on the community team, one of the first things I did was do a survey. So we put together a survey and got like, you know, 3,000 developers, I think, responded to it. It was a lot. It was a lot, yeah. Not expecting that many. And something like a quarter of them were people that didn't even use Rust, which is, we kind of set the survey up. So if you don't use Rust, we ask you why and kind of get Mm -hmm. questions specific to that. And if you do, we kind kind of understand, you know, the way that you use Rust. And the one that really struck us, um, of course, learning curve was a point of feedback yep. that we, we, took, we took to heart. But the one that surprised me out of the gate was the, for the people that did not use Rust, one of, what are the reasons you do not use Rust? And a quarter of them says, a quarter of them said, I do not use Rust because there is no IDE support. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a systems language and a bunch of people that use VI and Emacs, that might feel a little weird, <laughs> but my spidey sense for Microsoft was tingling at yep. that thing. Well, yeah. Where do you, where do you think Visual Studio gets all its users? Where do you where do you think the vast majority of developers in the world <laughs> do their job? It's in IntelliJ IDEA or Visual Studio or Xcode. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where if all you know is open source and all you know is the mm-hmm. little window that you have that's Hacker News. No offense to Hacker News or Reddit. No offense to Reddit, but the vast majority of developers are not on those platforms and they're not VI users and they're not open source users. Nope. And um, to actually get a, gl- a glimpse of that, I thought I think it was really good. We put a blog yeah. post together and talked about it, but when we're talking about what should we be investing in over the next year, the next two years, of course, the IDE tools were front and center. If we can remove that piece, there's a whole bunch of users ready to, to try out Rust for the first time. Yeah. That bubble thing is amusing to me because it doesn't matter where you go, which tells me it's a human thing, not a specific language thing. I'm at a shop right now that's mostly C-sharp.net backend, and they're just like, yeah, C-sharp's the thing. That's what we do. And they're great developers. I'm like, what about all these other languages? I'm like, yeah, I don't really need them. C-sharp's great. And I've been in other places where they're like, Python. It's what you do. Don't really need all these other languages. And people who've done Ruby on Rails for 10 years, I'm like, yeah, 
other things, maybe Elixir, because it looks a little like Ruby, but <laughs> why would you ever write C++? And we all get in those little bubbles, and I was really glad when you guys did the survey that you got a broad enough response to see, oh, here are some things that are outside our Vim and Emacs-loving circles. You know, I'm a... I'm a sort of in-betweener who likes the Atom and the VS Code and Sublime, but I also use IntelliJ a lot of days out of the week, and I also fire up Vim every day for various tasks. And I imagine there are a lot of people in that bucket, too. Yeah. And so I was super excited when you guys said that one of the things you were tackling was the Rust language server. Yeah, there, <laughs> there you go, go. listeners. <laughs> it's the server. I know, I know I said it wrong on every single one, but... Server. Yeah. So we would definitely do that. Just as an aside to people that are interested in programming language design or starting a new project like that, because I think talking about bubbling and then we can we can talk about mm-hmm. it far less. No, that's a really important topic, I think. The thing to remember when you get started is it's gonna take far longer than you think that it will. There's a natural tendency for developers when they pick up their tools that day and it's comfortable for them to never look outside of that to another tool. Like, it, it's what they're used to. And there's a lot of inertia to that. So if you want to start a new project, like the next, whatever, the next Rust or the next you know, Ruby or whatever it is, um, assume that it's going to be a multi-year project to even get enough eyeballs on it, enough people jumping on, that it feels worthwhile. Yeah. But that is totally normal. So stick with it. When I look at the the language adoption curves and how long it took from when Guido started on Python to when Python kind of hit mainstream or oh, Mats and Ruby or... Absolutely. I mean, it's long. It's, and even something, the environment was totally different once Drew Strip launched C++, but it took a long time for that to become the thing instead of C and Pascal and some ADA. Yeah. My dad worked on ADA projects you know, still late nineties, early two thousands timeframe and no, almost no one's using ADA now, but it's fun to see ideas from ADA cropping up in other places since then too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a long, slow curve. I look at languages like Elixir or Elm, which you feel like burst onto the scene after being around and being in development for five years. And then yeah. all of a sudden it's like, they came from nowhere. Well, no, they right. came from five years of people working really hard, basically in total, total solitude and no one knowing what was going on. Absolutely. And and the fact that Elixir builds on, you know, the previous work, yep. like, like that's huge too. So it's not starting from scratch. And, and TypeScript was a similar thing, like building from JavaScript instead of, had we done our own thing, like our own, like a Microsoft Dart or something, uh, I think that would have been a much harder lift than just starting from... Dart's adoption suggests exactly that. <laughs> I'll leave that as an ex- exercise <laughs> to the listener. So, uh, all right, so let's talk RLS. Let's, yes. let's, let's get into the, the IDE side of things. You know, now we've, for all the, the programming... Covered like, all people, the other we've, we've covered that now. So on the IDE side... We had a challenge immediately out of the gate. So coming from TypeScript, I knew that the best way to have really good IDE support is to have the compiler be what serves the IDE, basically as as directly as you can connect the Mm -hmm. two. Um, And in kind of what I would think of as a flywheel way. So I'm typing, and the compiler is working immediately on what I'm giving it, and it can give me a result 
you know, in sub seconds, sub milliseconds in some cases. Mm -hmm. If I hit dot, I'm not going to wait, you know, 10 seconds to get an answer. That That's just not a good experience. No. And the only way to really do that is to have the compiler and its full knowledge sitting there if you want perfect accuracy. So uh, C Sharp went through that, TypeScript went through that. And then when I got here, I was saying, well, can we can we get the Rust compiler to do that? And the first the first times we're really talking about it, there is definitely a what are you asking us to do? <laughs> we don't that's not how the compiler is even built. It's it's the Rust compiler is a very traditional straight line compiler that goes from A to B to C to D. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing's lazy, nothing is it's used to going in cycles. It's it is, you know, a normal compiler. Right. Um, and so saying, well, the only way I know how to actually build one of these language servers is to do this flywheel approach. That got some that got the compiler team thinking. And you know, they had already been in the back of their mind saying, Oh yeah, when it's time, we'll get there. But then you see the survey results and the need for this IDE support. And so like, well, we need to put it in the plan. We need to figure out how to do this. I guess it's time now. Yeah, exactly. So we couldn't we couldn't wait for I mean all props to the compiler team, but this is a lot of work yeah. to move the compiler from one style of compiler to another, effectively another style of compiler. Uh, we knew it would take a year, maybe two years, maybe even more. You know, uh, we couldn't wait that long. So we were at a whiteboard at one of the team meetings, just talking through well, how can we how can we make this happen. Like we need it now or yesterday, preferably, but the compiler can't <laughs> right. give us what we need. But we have this tool, Racer, that had been around and people had been using that. And that's more of a heuristic approach to uh, to doing an IDE. So it's, it kind of looks at your code, does some syntactic parsing, makes some good guesses, and then that's how you get your completions. It's really fast, too. Mm-hmm. So because it's not doing that heavy lifting, it's it, it can give you that nice sub-millisecond response time. So we're at the whiteboard going, well, we have Racer, and we need to get to the compiler as well. Let's do the smart thing of somehow you know, fitting these together just so you get one when you need the fast result, and you get one when you need the accurate result, and it'll just work. It'll just work. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so when we were first trying it out, we didn't even know that it was going to actually work. We just said, well, mm. it seems like it might. About three weeks before Rust Conf last year, I said, Nick, we're going to do it. <laughs> we're doing this thing now. <laughs> uh, and I have an idea on how to get started. And I built the first like, really, really rough demo of what would become the RLS based on some of the stuff that he had done with RustW, which is a, another mm-hmm. cool idea that I hope we continue to evolve. And we, we might be able to talk about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But the the idea of the, the RLS, you know, I had seen the language server protocol that the VS Code people were working on. And it just seemed like this is this is going to get us there as fast as we can get there. So we already have VS Code. It's ready for plugins. We have a good protocol that we can share across IDEs and editors. Let's put a demo together that is going to be inside of you know, VS Code use some of these features. And what we'll do is we'll just, whenever we need to set that quick answer, we'll go to Racer. And whenever we can take our time, we'll go to the compiler. And that was the the nugget of the idea. So I stood that up. 
put a put a demo together and showed Nick and was like, I think we can do it. All right, can we get a demo together in, in three weeks that we can show at Ruscoff? You know, even if it's even if there's a, a little bit of hand waving, can we at least show the direction that this thing might be able to go? Yeah. And we put our heads down and you know went dark for three weeks and and what you saw at the in the Ruscoff video was the result of of that um, experiment. And that was enough to kind of propel us forward and say, you know, that crazy idea that we had of, of actually being able to get going now might actually work. We might actually be able to get a decent IDE experience while we wait for the compiler to, you know, go the full distance and right. become a poll style compiler so it can it can serve the language server. You mentioned poll style. So that's the difference then primarily is you've got the, the traditional kind of Push That's right. parsing and pushing down through each layer versus a pulling, requesting a stream of. Yeah, exactly. You can think of um, if if the listeners have have tried to work on compilers before. You know, you get kind of a, a tree that's built out of the source code, and it's more structured uh, and shows kind of what the the code is. But you can actually annotate it with oh, the type of this is that type, and the type of this thing is that type, mm-hmm. in, in kind of a graph or tree way. The problem with this is that to actually calculate all the nodes is incredibly expensive. Right. But that's what happens at compile time. That's why it takes so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need all that type of information when you're actually outputting code to run on your computer. Like you have to do that calculation. But if you don't have to do it, if you're just an IDE and I hover over just this one symbol, I want just the type of just this one symbol, I don't need to calculate the type of everything else in the world. And so <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, what Anders Helsberg likes to call helicoptering in. So you can imagine you just kind of drop, you get helicopter into that one little spot and then pull from there. And it can just calculate based on the dependencies of all that of that symbol. You know, it says, oh, right. that symbol is defined over here. And I infer the type this way. OK, I'll have to pull on those two things. And it does the minimum amount of calculation to give you the answer for what the type is. So being able to have that is necessary for doing language servers, but again, requires a, a rethink for how the compiler works. Yeah, that makes sense. So as you guys have been implementing that, the cycle, as I recall, was announced back in October at RustConf. You shipped an alpha in December, I want to say, and then an alpha two in February. Yeah, somewhere in that range, yeah. And then a beta this week. <laughs> Oh, man, that felt good. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, what we're doing underneath uh, to try to give you all the information, like hooking into the compiler and getting information from the compiler, there's a lot of stuff that we need to iron out so it's nice and reliable all the time for all code. Um, And Rust code can be pretty complicated when you start thinking about, you know, we've got metaprogramming, we've got things like Surday that we're, we're working with. Uh, we have to iron out all the corner cases to give you nice, precise uh, information. And so we needed more and more people to pick it up, to try it, to, to give us feedback. But unfortunately, when we're at the alpha stage, we had people picking it up and trying it, but it was you know, the order of a few dozen or something in terms of right. uh, the number of people sending us issues. And we needed a lot more than that. So going from you know down pulling this from the repo and 
all our machinations to actually try to build it and get it working from that to I can just rust up component add RLS and actually start working with it uh, to us is that's huge. And I've already gotten, I, I don't know how many comments and tweets <laughs> and, you know, all kinds of stuff because now we're, we've clicked over that, that mm -hmm. difficulty curve to where it's actually easy to pick it up and run with it. Um, and now of course we get the other, the other, the better problem, which is having a lot of things we need to work on. Yeah. Uh, it's exciting to, to be at that stage and to win. So Nick's on parental leave when he gets back, we're going to probably really, really dig in and see how far we can push this thing using all this new feedback that we got. So in the beta phase, I know the instructions all currently say rust up default nightly, rust up do all these things. The, is the intent for it to stay nightly only until it's sort of ready to go and then track into stable then just like a, a language feature would? Yeah, exactly. So what we're, we weren't exactly sure when it should, as they say, ride the train mm -hmm. from nightly to beta to stable. Um, it sounds like the core team has decided that it's going to stay on nightly for one more uh, six-week cycle, and then it will start into beta. Cool. So that basically gives us something like 12-ish weeks mm -hmm. to get ready for um, a stable release. Now, like I think you actually mentioned this in the, the podcast that was specifically about the RLS. So there are some features that we took out because you know, they can have this negative impact on your code. If you don't have precise knowledge of your code and you start refactoring right. and random stuff gets renamed where it shouldn't be renamed in your code. No, do not want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do not want that. So the first release may be kind of conservative. We'll have final references and go to definition because these don't change anything in your code. They're just really helpful for code navigation. But of course, as soon as we can, we want to turn on refactoring. We want to open it up so people can send us new refactoring so we can incorporate those. Mm. But we've been like laser focused on getting as accurate as possible and getting all the corner case stuff worked out. So then once that's there, that's a really solid foundation to build the, the really fun features. Two parts down. But if you thought there were some interesting tidbits in this second part, just wait for the finale when Jonathan throws some amazing ideas out there for the future of Rust tooling. So we got the RLS. We have this cool, it's basically a good data stream of information about your project. Neato, guess what else could use that cool data stream? If we could get Rustdoc to speak the same APIs that RLS is using, then we can say, all right, stand up the RLS and now connect to a website. There's your whole project. We've got it all figured out. And we didn't have to connect to the compiler um, in this really hairy way that current Rustock does. And even better, we can separate out the templates so that we can get web developers giving us better and better templates and not be worrying about all this yuck to get to that point. Thanks to Anthony Deschamps, Christopher Gifford, Chris Palmer, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, Matt Rudder, Ben Whitley, Peter Tillemans, Philip Keller, Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kyla Virta for sponsoring the show this month. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash station. You can also give a one-off contribution at any of a number of other services listed on the show website, or if you're a company interested in advertising to developers, get in touch with me directly. 
As always, you can find show notes and links for this episode, as well as previous episodes with their code samples and so on, at newrustation.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at New Rust Station. You can follow me there at Chris Kreitcho, and you can follow Jonathan there or on GitHub at JNTRNR. If you enjoy the show, please tell somebody about it, whether that's by tweeting or otherwise sharing it on social media, by just telling a friend, or by helping people find it in their specific podcast directory, which would be most helpful if you just do it with whatever podcast directory you use. I'd also love to hear your feedback, along with suggestions for other topics, other interviewees, and so on. You can always just send me an email at hello at newruststation.com, or reach out on social media, or comment in the threads for the episode on the Rust user forums, or on Hacker News, or on Reddit. Until next time, happy coding.